Well, let's turn to God's words once again together. We're going to read this time from Philippians chapter 4, Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 4, and we'll read verses 1 to 9 of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who live with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen. Let's continue our worship as we come to God in prayer. Let's come together in prayer to the Lord. Amen. Well, let's uh, sing once again uh, before we come to the preaching of God's words. Our next hymn, uh, version of Psalm 23, The Lord's My Shepherd.
If you have a Bible with you, uh, let's turn together to that psalm that we read from, Psalm 13. Psalm 13. A few weeks ago, I was uh, down in Devon visiting my family, and while I was down there, I had opportunity to take my two little nieces out for the day. My nieces are two and four, and we had the chance to go out for a nice day out together. And uh, we got them uh, bundled into the car. And as we pulled off of the driveway in my sister's house, I heard a little voice from the back of the car which said, are we there yet? It's a voice which many of us will be familiar with when we have uh, young kids, isn't it? And um, of course, the answer to that question was no. We've uh, barely got the car started. And then that was followed up by another common question, which was, well, how long is it going to be until we get there? How long until we get there? And how long? How long? That's a question that we all find ourselves asking ourselves as we go through life. Barely a day goes by where I don't find myself asking the question to myself, how long is it until lunchtime? We ask ourselves, how long will this job take? How long do I have until I have to get such and such a thing? How long do I have before I have to pay this bill or sort out this thing that I've got to sort out? How long do I have before I have to leave so that I can get to this place that I need to go to on time? How long is it until the weekend? The question that teachers have been asking themselves for the last few weeks, how long is it until the school holidays come around? In just a week or two, parents will surely be asking themselves, how long is it until the schools start back again? How long until I can retire And other questions as well, we we get ill and we ask, well, how long is this illness going to last? How long is this cold going to last? How long is this other thing going to last? And these questions can extend to even uh, deeper and more difficult issues. How long will this period of depression last? Will it continue on forever? We can ask these questions about spiritual matters as well. How long will this pattern of habitual sin in my life last? How long will this period of temptation last? How long will these doubts bombard me for? How long will this spiritual dryness persist? How long will these things go on for? 
Afflictions that are caused by our own sin, afflictions that are caused by our suffering. These things can cause us to turn to the Lord and cry out, how long, Lord? How long? Can cause us to ask him, will you not take these things away from me? Will you not come to me again? We can look back at times in our lives, can't we, where we were on the mountaintop, as it were. We were enjoying the Lord, enjoying sweet communion with him, at times of great joy and blessing. And those things feel like a distant memory for us. And we say, how long until we can experience that again? Will we get to experience it again? It can leave us asking, can't it? Is this it now? Is this what life is going to be like from here on out? Is this how it's going to be forever? And when we find these questions in our minds and in our hearts, one thing which can niggle at the back of our minds is that even to think these things, even to feel these things is wrong. We we think, should I even be feeling like this? Is even feeling like this going to cause some problems for me spiritually? Is it sinful to feel like this? But mercifully for us, if we ever have experienced that, maybe if we're experiencing that right now, or if we ever experience it in the future, mercifully, this Psalm, Psalm 13, demonstrates that feeling like this is not sinful. It demonstrates to us that it's not the case. In this Psalm, we have David four times crying out to the Lord in verses one and two, saying, how long? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Four times David cries. And let us not forget that although David penned these words, this is God's words. Four times David cries out, how long, Lord? And each time he adds different explainers for us, explaining to us what he's going through. And we can summarize what he's going through in three different ways. Firstly, um, he's uh, worried about what we could call divine amnesia. David is questioning, am I the victim of divine amnesia? Verse 1, will you forget me forever? David feels like the Lord has forgotten him. And then um, in the second half of verse 1, the Lord has hidden his face from him. So there's feeling forgotten, feeling like the Lord is hidden from him. And then David is suffering as well. We see in verse two, from inner turmoil, having sorrow in my heart daily. And then the third thing is his enemies being exalted over him. Second half of verse two there, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? David feels like the Lord has forgotten him, feels like the Lord is hidden from him. He's got inner turmoil in his heart and his enemies are being exalted over him. And these are not three separate, different problems, three isolated problems for David, but these are the mixed up fruits of his circumstances. A real enemy is afflicting David and seems to be winning. And this is probably a young David, and Saul is probably the enemy who is being exalted over him. He's crying out to the Lord, and he's not getting an answer. And his heart and his mind are in turmoil as a result. In verse 2, we see that that David's heart and his mind are are racing a million miles an hour. He's taking counsel within his soul. He's trying to work out what's going on, and he's coming up blank. He can't find out an answer to his situation in that moment. But note clearly as well that David is not just trying to solve his problems on his own, is he? 
No, David is clearly looking to the Lord. David is clearly crying out to the Lord, seeking him, but seemingly getting nothing in return. I'm sure all of us have been in uh, that situation. And it's most embarrassing when it happens to you when you're in public, that situation where you're uh, speaking to someone on your mobile phone. And as you're speaking to them, you lose signal. The signal starts to crackle and, and uh, you find yourself saying, hello, hello. And it's, it's a bit awkward and it's a bit embarrassing when a two-way conversation becomes a one-way conversation, when you're calling out and there's no answer. And then suddenly you, ha- you hear those beeps in your ear and the line goes dead. David surely feels as if the phone has gone dead in his hand. He feels as if the Lord has hidden his face from him. And so the question for us as we look at this psalm is, is that what had happened? Had the Lord forgotten David? Had the Lord hidden his face from David? And that's the million dollar question because we so often find ourselves in the same situation, crying out, how long, O Lord? Wondering whether the Lord has forgotten us. Wondering if the Lord is hiding himself from us. We need an answer to this question so we can understand these things. So had the Lord forgotten David? Had the Lord hidden his face from David? The answer, of course, is no. But the answer is also yes. The answer is no and it's yes. It's yes and it's no. And to answer the question in that way, it's not a cop-out. It's not to kind of uh, sneakily not answer the question. The no and the yes, that represents for us a profound theology of what's going on here. And it's crucial for us to think it through and to get it right. So verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Had the Lord forgotten about David? Let's put it another way. Had the transcendent, uh, omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful God forgotten about David? Had he put David out of his mind completely, as it were? For God to forget something, that's not a completely unbiblical concept. In Isaiah 43, the Lord says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. In Hebrews 8 and 10, in the same way we're told their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. The omniscient, all-knowing Lord can forget things if he so chooses, but he can only forget things as an intentional act of his divine will. Nothing slips from his mind in the way that it does for us so often. Just as I forgot to lead us in the Lord's Prayer this morning, nothing slips from his mind in that way. And so again, had the promise-making, promise-keeping, all-knowing God forgotten his anointing of David as his chosen king? Had he forgotten his commitment to David? Had he forgotten David himself, even as David suffered and struggled? The answer to that question is, of course, no. But did David feel like the Lord had forgotten him? As David went through this difficult trial, this difficult situation, did David feel like the Lord had forgotten him? Of course he did. It's right here in the psalm. That's exactly how David felt. But the Lord has not forgotten him. And David ultimately does deep down know this. He does know that the Lord has 
not forgotten him. And this becomes clear in the rest of the psalm, doesn't it? The Lord has not forgotten him, even though in the moment it feels like he has. The Lord has not forgotten him. So the second part of that question, has the Lord hidden his face from David? Well, it seems the answer to that question is yes. The Lord has hidden his face from David in that moment. David, when he says about the Lord hiding his face, he's not talking about seeing the Lord directly. He's not talking about seeing him face to face in that sense. But David is using the Lord's face as an expression. Seeing the Lord's face is an expression, an illustration for knowing the Lord's presence with him, knowing the Lord's goodness and help and blessing in different situations he finds himself in. We're familiar with the words from the blessing that was given to Aaron. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. That's an expression of the Lord's blessing upon his people. And as David goes through his difficult trial, despite asking for it, despite seeking it, he is experiencing nothing of the Lord's presence or goodness or comfort with him in a way that he can sense and feel in that moment. The Lord has hidden his face from him. But here's the situation. David belongs to the Lord, doesn't he? There's a relationship between David and the Lord. There's promise and there's covenant between David and the Lord. And with that in mind, we can say that the Lord will never forget David. He will never forsake David. He will keep his promises and finally deliver him from this situation. That's true on the one hand. And yet at one and the same time, The Lord, in his sovereign wisdom, in his providence, has seen fit to hide his face from David for a time. He's seen fit to leave David in a place where he feels like he's forgotten, where he's feeling deep sorrow in his heart, and he's left feeling down enough to be convinced that his enemies are going to be exalted over him. Here's the situation for us. That's the situation for David. Here's the situation for us here this evening. And I want to pause for a moment at at this point to say that this is the situation for us if we belong to the Lord. If we belong to the Lord, if we're his children, if we've come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. This psalm and my sermon assumes that we have come to know the Lord in that way. Notice how in David's situation, for all the difficulties that he's going through, we still have this declaration in verse 3. Notice how he refers to God. Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. There's still no question of the relationship that is there, even as he goes through this difficult situation. And so as we apply this psalm to ourselves, we have to make clear that the, the hope of this psalm, the truth of this psalm, is to encourage us if we belong to the Lord. If we can turn to him and say, my Lord and my God, if that's not true of us, then this psalm does not offer comfort to us. If that's not true of you, then turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Trust in him. Receive him and all his promises. Recognize your sin and your needs and and turn away from it. Trust in him, his life and death and resurrection. That's where hope is to be found. But if we do belong to the Lord, if we have trusted in the Lord Jesus, then what's happened to us as we've believed, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ is that we've been united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. 
As Paul talks um, to Christians and talks about Christians in his letters, the way that Paul likes to talk about Christians is those who are in Christ, those who live in him, who belong to him, who are united to him. As we receive the Lord Jesus, our, our spirits become united to him, such as we're one with him. We're in union with him. We're inextricably united to the Lord Jesus. The spiritual life that we have is his life within us. All Christians, all who have received the Lord Jesus Christ are in union with him. And if that's our situation, if we're united to the eternal divine son of God by faith, then the Lord will not forget us, will he? If we're united to his son, if we live in his son, then the Lord will not forget us. So far from not forgetting us, instead we are the object of his eternal and electing love. If we're his children, then we read in Ephesians 1 about how he chose us in the Lord Jesus Christ before the foundation of this world. In love, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So far from forgetting us, rather we are at the center of his saving purposes for this world. So far from forgetting us, we are on his heart. We are in his hands. We are united to his son. We are one in spirit, in union with his son. He will not forget us. He has not forgotten us, even when it feels like he has. And yet, at one and the same time, the Lord may for a time see fit to hide his face from us. There may be times where we're unable to experience his presence with us. We don't feel his goodness. We don't feel his face shining upon us. When we talk about that aspect of our relationship with the Lord Jesus, not knowing his presence with us, we're talking there not about our union with him, which is unchanging, unbreakable. We're talking about our communion with him. Communion, not to talk about the Lord's Supper, but our experience of relationship with him. Remember these two things, union and communion. Our union with the Lord Jesus, unbreakable, never changing. Our communion, our experience of our relationship with him, liable to wax and to wane, liable to change. And sometimes our communion with the Lord Jesus is affected by our own sin, isn't it? It's affected by our apathy. Sometimes it feels like his face is hidden from us because We've run away in the opposite direction. We've decided to go down a path of sin. We've backslidden from him. And if that's the case, then we need to repent and return to him, don't we? Sometimes it feels like his face is hidden because we've grown apathetic. Sometimes it feels like his face is hidden because we're not looking for his face. I used to do that all the time when I was a kid. I'd, I'd uh, not be able to immediately remember where something was. And instead of looking for it, I'd just ask my mum to get it for me. Sometimes we don't find him because we're not looking. And the solution, if, those are the, if that's the case, is to seek him out, to go to him, to look to him, to return to him, to ask him to come to us, to cry out to him as David does here. But note that neither of those things are David's problem. David's problem is not his sin. David's problem is not that he is apathetic and that he's not seeking the Lord's. If there's one thing that David's doing in this psalm, it's crying out to the Lord, asking him to come to him. David's feelings are not caused by his sin. David's feelings are not caused by a failure to seek God's face. No, he's crying out 
begging God to come to him. Yet for a moment, for a time, the Lord does not immediately come to him. And this can happen to us. Maybe it's happened to you, a point that you can remember previously in your Christian life. Maybe it's happening to you now. Maybe you are on the mountaintop this evening, and praise God if that's true for you. But chances are, at one point or another in this life, this kind of thing might happen to us, and it's good to be prepared in that case. And when the Lord hides his face from us, we ask the question, why? And the answer to that question is, well, we might never fully know. We might never fully understand why the Lord chooses to do that. But there are some things that we do know. We do know that the Lord is good. We do know that the Lord is for us. We do know, as we've heard even this evening, that he will not forget us. And so if we find ourselves in this position, what are we to do? Well, firstly, again, remember, recognize it's not sinful to feel like this. It might be helpful if we find ourselves in that that kind of situation to ask ourselves, well, have I sinned? Am I doing something that's causing this breakdown of communion with the Lord Jesus? But remember, it's not necessarily sinful to feel like this. David sinned a lot, didn't he? David sinned a lot, and he sinned in awful ways. And he would be the first to admit that, wouldn't he? But David is not sinning here. And now as we apply this psalm, the first thing for us to do is to ask how this psalm applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalms were Jesus's hymn book and his prayer book. He quotes the psalms at various different times in various different places. And of course, David is the king of Israel, a type of Christ, and also a prophet who speaks of Christ. His experiences and his words speak on their deepest level about the Lord Jesus Christ just as the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of God's word um, do. God's word preaches Christ to us, and Psalm 13 is no exception. And we can no doubt hear the words of this psalm on the lips of the Lord Jesus, the words of those first two verses on the lips of our Lord Jesus. Remember the Lord Jesus as he went out into the garden of Gethsemane. Remember what we're told of the Lord Jesus as he arrived in Gethsemane. He began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. Words that echo verses two and three of this psalm. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. The Lord Jesus knew what it was to feel the experience of those verses. When did the Lord Jesus know the experience of his father's face being hidden from him, if not there in the darkness as he hung dying on the cross, as he bore the sin and shame, the wrath of um, his father towards the sins of his people? The Lord Jesus knew the experience of the Lord hiding his face from him. As he spoke out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His father's face was hidden from him. Why did the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the son at the father's side in blessed relationship eternally, object of the father's eternal affection, why did he become incarnate and enter into such an experience as that? Well, it was for us. It was for his people. 
to save us. And if the Lord Jesus entered into this experience, then it's not sinful to ask ourselves these questions, to cry out in this way. And the Lord Jesus entered into this experience that he might one day ultimately free us from it. As we find ourselves crying out, how long, O Lord? When you find yourself crying out, how long, O Lord? Remind yourself of this, the how long will not be forever. The how long will not be forever. There may be a passing moment where we don't see his face. There will be times of suffering that come and go until we die if the Lord does not return. But the Lord Jesus has entered into our suffering and he will one day free us from it completely. The how long will not be forever. And while we're going through the hard times, while we're going through the valleys, we have a savior who can sympathize and empathize. And again, one day he will free us from it. One day his face will no longer be hidden. One day we'll see his face. We'll literally see his face and he'll see ours. And the thumb at the end of his nail-pierced hand will be lifted to our eyes as he wipes away every tear. Every how long tear will be wiped away and his face will never be hidden from us again. And in the meantime, while we do find ourselves crying out how long, he can sympathize with us. Um, I was reading recently some poet, uh, poetry by the poet William Blake, and he had some weird ideas, but I was reading one poem, and um, the truth of it just hit me so hard as I was reading. The poem's called On Another's Sorrow, and these are the last three stanzas of that poem. He doth give his joy to all. He becomes an infant small. He becomes a man of woe. He doth feel the sorrow too. Think not thou canst sigh a sigh, and thy maker is not by. Think not thou canst weep a tear, and thy maker is not near. Oh, he gives to us his joy, that our grief he may destroy. Till our grief is fled and gone, he doth sit by us and moan. This is our saviour, the man of sorrows, the man who is acquainted with grief. The one who entered into every experience that we have experienced, sin accepted, to one day free us from it. And in the meantime, he is close to us. His spirit even dwells within us. So again, if we find ourselves in this position, what are we to do? Some practical things that we can do. And the first thing is this, lament. Like David, lament. Lament the situation that you find yourself in. Lament and seek his face. Lament is not grumbling, it's not complaining, it's not wallowing in self-pity. Rather, lament is a prayer. Lament is a prayer for God to act in accordance with his promises and his eternal purposes. Lament recognizes that the situation that we find ourselves in, in the moment, is not how it always will be. Lament is a prayer for God to change our circumstances. It asks God to change things. It's akin to in the Lord's Prayer where we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. It recognizes that this is not how it always will be. And it asks God to bring his kingdom, to change things. It, of course, recognizes that the means of answer and the timescale, these things remain in God's hands, remain 
um, in his wisdom, in his providence, but it still asks him to act according to his promises and eternal purposes. So laments. And then as David does, remind yourself of the objective truths and then ask that your subjective experience would come to reflect those objective truths. There are four things in this psalm that David reminds himself of to help bring comfort to his afflicted soul. And the first one is this. David reminds himself about God's glory. He reminds himself about God's glory. We see this in verses three and four. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who troubled me rejoice when I am moved. David asks God to act, and the reason that he gives to God in asking God to act is his enemies. David recognizes that God's glory is connected with defeating his people's enemies. God has chosen to to connect his glory with his people's goods. It brings God no glory for his people to be defeated by their enemies. Moses prayed to the Lord in this way, didn't he, when he Uh, When he led the people out of um, Egypt in the Exodus, uh, Moses reminds the Lord and he says, um, he says, the nations are watching. Do not let your people perish. Do not let your people fail. It brings you no glory for you to bring us out here and to to let your people fail here in the wilderness. God will not uh, let us finally fall or fail because his glory depends on it. He will deliver us in this life or the next. His glory depends on him saving his people, the people that he has chosen. His glory depends on on once and for all ending sin and suffering and death and glorifying a people for himself, to be his children, to be his son's perfect bride. His glory depends on him finishing that which he has started in us. So when you're suffering, remember that God's glory depends on him um, bringing you safe through if you are his child. Secondly, David reminds himself that he is trusting in the Lord's mercy. Beginning of verse five. I have trusted in your mercy or your unfailing love, your steadfast love, trusting in the Lord's kindness. He is trusting in the Lord's mercy, his unfailing love, his covenant kindness. In other words, David is trusting in God and in God's promise. And that is true for us too. God has promised to us salvation in his son. He's proved it to us by giving his son to us. And if he has given us his son, will he not also along with him give us all things? For the Lord Jesus to fail, uh, for God to fail, his love would have to fail. For his love to have to fail, he himself would have to fail. It's impossible. He will not fail. He has promised. He has pledged it to us. He's given us his son and his spirit. He will not fail us. So remember the Lord's unfailing love. Remember his mercy. The third thing that David does is rejoice in the Lord's salvation. Rejoice in the Lord's salvation. I read that passage from Philippians 4, and it's a challenging passage, isn't it, that passage in Philippians 4. It always always, um, is difficult when we read those words, rejoice in all circumstances. That's a convicting thing to read, isn't it? Difficult to rejoice in all circumstances. How can we rejoice 
when at one and the same time we're crying out, how long, O Lord? And yet even in the midst of great darkness, that's exactly what David does. In verse 5, David finds cause for rejoicing. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation, regardless of all other circumstances that we might find ourselves in. There is always cause for rejoicing. We as the Lord's people always have reason to rejoice. Again, he has given us his son. He has saved us from our sins. We belong to him. We live in him. This is objectively true of us, no matter how we subjectively feel. We have this as an anchor for our souls. We always have cause for rejoicing, no matter how dark the darkness. So rejoice in the Lord and in his salvation. Then fourthly, finally, and simply, David reminds himself of the Lord's goodness. It's there in verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David, in a sense, in this verse, almost takes a different perspective. David is able to, to almost look back on what he's gone through and see a time when his problems have been resolved, and he's able to declare that the Lord has been, and the Lord will be good, because the Lord is good. It's part of his nature. It's part of who he is. The Lord is good. It's a simple truth, and yet it's a glorious truth. The Lord is good. He has been good to us. He will be good to us. And the thing that's difficult for us to see when we are crying out how long is that he is still being good to us. Even when his face is hidden from us, he does not stop being good in that moment. It's true, isn't it, that when the sun is covered by the clouds, the sun still shines. When darkness covers our corner of the globe, the sun is still shining. God is good. And God is good even when his face is hidden from us. He does not stop being good when we can't sense his presence with us, when we don't know his goodness with us. He does not stop being good. He does not stop working all things according to the counsel of his will. He's still working all things for the good of those who love him, even and despite his face being hidden from us. And it's true even that sometimes his face is hidden from us for our good, for some good that we cannot see, for some good that we might not understand this side of eternity. Maybe it's to stir us, to call us close to him, or something else that's beyond our understanding. The Lord does not stop being good even as his face is hidden from us. It's true, isn't it, that language is important. And I think it's significant that we see here that the Lord's face is hidden. In verse 1, David says, how long will you hide your face from me? I think it's significant that David uses the phrase hidden from me and not turned away. There's a difference, isn't there, between the Lord's face being hidden and the Lord's face being turned away. We sing in that new hymn, don't we? The Father turns his face away, talking about when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't sing that hymn, but I think it means a slightly different thing to his face being hidden. Even as the Father poured his righteous wrath towards sin on his Son, the Lord Jesus, on the cross, even as that happened, even as Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His Father's face was not turned away from him. The Lord Jesus had no sense of his Father's face with him uh, as the God-man hanging there on the cross. 
Yet, the father was never so pleased with his son as at that moment on the cross. The father was well pleased with his son there. It was there that his son was being obedient even to death. It was there that his son was accomplishing the great work of salvation for his people. His face was not turned away, even when it was hidden. When the Lord hides his face from us, he is not turned away from us. He has a plan and a purpose in it and through it. He has not turned away, and we are not forgotten. There's another hymn writer who understood this well. William Cooper, friend of John Newton. He was a man who suffered so, so much, struggled with all kinds of uh, depression and Um, suffered with suicide attempts and really difficult things that he went through in his life. And yet he wrote for us that wonderful hymn, didn't he? Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. I have no doubts that Psalm 13 would have been a precious psalm for dear William Cooper, as he struggled with all the problems that he did. He didn't attend church for the last 27 years of his life because of the doubts, the spiritual doubts and the difficulties that he faced. It's true that for William Cooper, the bud did have a bitter taste. And yet now, even this moment, he's enjoying the sweetness of the flower, isn't he? In the presence of his Lord Jesus, the flower is truly sweet. The Lord Jesus is sweet. So friends, to summarize, if you're crying out how long you're not sinning, remember what is objectively true of both God and you as his child. Seek him, trust him, remember your suffering and sympathetic saviour. Remember that he is good and that he's working good. Remember that he's not turned away. Remember that how long is not forever. Remember that one day his face will never be hidden again. One day his hand will wipe away every tear. Trust in his mercy. Rejoice in his salvation. Sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with you, with me, and with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to recognize the goodness of your purposes for us, even when your face is hidden from us. Lord, stir our hearts to seek you continually in and through all things. And Lord, we ask that you would um, show your face to us, Lord. Shine your face upon us. Help us to see your providence in all things, Lord. Help us to recognize that we are in your hands and that you are good. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's join together to sing that hymn that I made reference to, God Moves in a Mysterious Way.
And now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of his Holy Spirit, now and evermore. Amen.